Welcome to the Aesthetic City podcast. I'm your host, Ruben Hansen, and in this podcast, we're going to talk about the question of how we can improve our built environment to make our cities more livable, more beautiful, and long-lasting. In this episode, we will venture into the world of architectural activism. In order to achieve change, vested interests will need to be shaken up. So for that reason, I have a special guest today in the studio from Stockholm, Sweden, who knows almost everything there is to know about architectural activism. His many interests include social anthropology, history, demography, and urban sociology, but, of course, also city planning and architecture. He has founded an influential platform on traditional architecture and urbanism, newtrad.org, which offers a map with extensive information on new traditional architecture projects worldwide. The creation of his group New Traditional Architecture went hand-in-hand with the founding of another group, called Architectural Uprising, which has caused a stir in the architectural world in Scandinavia. Our guest has already been interviewed by various broadcasting agencies and online magazines about this. But today, it is my honor to have him on as my guest on this show. Please welcome Michael Diamant. Thank you very much and for hosting me. It's, it's, uh, it's always very, very nice to be able to express, you know, the ideas that I and, and many others have, you know, regarding this subject. Uh, how to change and affect our built environment to make it better. Uh, as many of your listeners will, will probably recall, we all walk around in our cities and, and conclude that everything built 100 years ago is very nice, very beautiful, very rich in, in um, cultural expression also, while everything built post-war is either boring box or just narcissist architecture the architects built to be different not not the the how do you say the biggest uh, attribute of, of the new building is that it's different not that it's good so how can we change this this is a very very good topic to to speak about yeah yeah because that's um you're a very fierce criticaster of modern architectural practices and uh, i think for good reason can you please tell me first a little bit about your 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 job, like how you came into the field of architecture, because you're not a full-time architect or in no, the field I'm, at all. I'm not an architect uh, and I'm not an urban planner. And it, it's very funny when I've been described, you know, in, in different blogs, that I'm like uh, architectural historian and, and all these kind of things. My, my day job at the moment is that I work with personnel for a food delivery company. So all this activism... I do in my spare time and that is good you know things should be vo- on a volunteer basis that's true change you know that's true dedication I don't get paid for it I do it because I love it uh, and because I want to see you know better cities and, and better architecture but uh, it's very funny you know that I didn't become an architect or an urban planner but the the reason is very simple I cannot draw, and I, in my naivete, when I was, you know, in my 20s, I thought, okay, I can't become an architect because I cannot draw, because I thought that you needed to be able to draw, you know, yeah. <laughs> when you do <laughs> a building. That, that's very laughable today when you see how, how, how most architecture is, you know, how is it created. But at that time, I thought that you had to have some, some kind of artistic skills. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I decided then when I when I chose a field to study at university, uh, society planning. 
we don't have, uh, I would say, definitions in Sweden is that we don't have cities. We have different degrees of dense areas. Mm -hmm. So it's not really urban, it's, we call it society planning. Uh, and there you can specialize in, in different fields. But we got the trouble that, that uh, while there is an education to become a society planner, the municipalities, they hire architects to do the planning. So mm. it was basically education for a profession that doesn't exist in Sweden. <laughs> so, so I uh, choose to specialize in, in urban sociology anyway. Uh, that is how people, you know, use the city, how they interact with the city, uh, different kind of, of relations in the city, both economic relations, how we use the city, how we move in the city, all, all these kind of things I find, found very interesting and I studied it. But then directly afterwards, no job, no job in, in, in the field of urban planning or consultant or anything. Uh, so then I worked in market research and then gradually led to, you know, to work with, with, the, with the HR and, and all these kinds yeah. of things that I did. But it's, it's still interesting that um, you can have so much of an impact, not even being in the field, just through part-time activism, you can have a huge mm. uh, role in the whole disc uh, discourse. Mm. And that says a lot how low the level is in the field. Because uh, now I'm going to say the first controversial thing on, on your pod here is that the whole area of urban studies and architecture is 99.99% idiots. I'm very sorry to say, I'm very, very sorry to say this, but, you know, I'm not forgiving anymore. You know, after concluding and talking with so many people and everything, they have no clue what they are doing. It's sad to say, but, but they have no clue. So, so it's really just... I'm like Captain Obvious or something. I, I say what everyone knows, but for yeah. them it's like, yeah, oh, oh, you, you must be very intelligent or anything like that. No, I just state the obvious. I, I learned also one thing. I am not ideologically blinded because what you do in, in modernist thinking in modernist school is you are never ever allowed to look back. You are not allowed to draw experience and wisdom from past people, you must always look ahead. Yeah. So it's very easy for me to be a great urban planner or a great architect without studying one single point of these things, just because I can just open a book. I have many books about both architecture and, and urban planning and read, and they have exact detail, you know, how wide should the streets will be, how, how tall should the buildings be, how large should the courtyards be? Everything is very, very specified and detailed. And also the thinking, how do you create a good street pattern, everything. Yeah. They have already done your job for us. And I'm open, so open-minded that I can read this and say, and reason, well, they are right because they created the cities that we want to live in. Yeah, I think it's, uh, oof, there's a lot of things you, you were talking about that uh, kind of triggered me. One of them is um, the lack of common sense, the common sense in, uh, architecture and urbanism that is just completely lacking uh, in my experience I was mm. studying uh, urbanism in uh, mm. Delft University of Technology mm. and what I found strange is that we never really got educated about these basic things like the you talked about like how wide should the street be how should a square look like um, it was loaded with academic things and 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 uh, yeah, uh, subjects about 
current problems, like uh, trying yeah. to solve a lot of environmental issues without first focusing on the, the basics of urban design. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and that's, the cr that's the crazy part. Uh, I see this a lot uh, where I live, you know, in Sweden. Architects seem to want to solve every problem except for architecture and urbanism, where they should be, you know, doing their stuff. And as a side note, a good grid yeah. will solve, will have a, a huge positive effect on, you know, the thing with climate change. If we can reduce transports, mm -hmm. that can have an impact in, in you know, millions of tons of, of CO2, yeah. you know. Uh, so, so it's bad urban planning is, is very, very, has a very, very negative effect on our climate. But no, they don't teach that. They don't even discuss that. They discuss silly things like growing food on rooftops in the city, you know. It's like they never read a book about economics or, you know, economic of scale and everything. It's so much silliness. I see only silliness, you know. I see never anything, uh, anything practical. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tried to, actually I, I was engaged in another group, group called New Urbanism, where I tried to promote some practical common sense with urban planning. And it worked very fine. The problem is I don't have enough spare time to be, uh, do original content for two groups. But that is something I really would like, you know, that, that's, if, if architecture is, is in a bad state now, urban planning is in an even worse state. And a building is easier to change than to change a whole grid. Yeah. You know, draw the streets again and everything. But it is very terrible because these people, they don't really know what they're doing. They yeah. really don't. They have no clue about, you know, consequences, ID, because they never, they don't allow themselves to open a book and read about the discussions and the experience that people lived before them had. Yeah. So they are, they are doomed to endlessly repeat all the mistakes that have been made through history. So are you talking about urban designers in the past like Camillo Sitte and uh, Brinkman or are you talking about uh, even earlier works? Uh, well, uh, everyone has their favorite model. And for me, uh, a model should also be relevant, you know. I, I'm very much... I, I listened to, you know, I listened to a lecture by Leon Cregan. He's a very, very intelligent person, very, very intelligent person. But with that said, I really dislike his urban designs because I really dislike this medievalism. It's very cute. You can have a small neighborhood that is, you know, with this windy small streets and everything. Yeah. But we need a working model that works for millions for a big yeah. city with a big demands, you know, with logistics and, and all these kind of things. And then you have an excellent model, an urban model, and that is the late 19th century, early 1900s continental European city, you know, the court, you know, these courtyards and this grid, not as rigid as the American grid, but still there is a grid, an organized grid, so you get efficient flows in the city. Because if you have a city with more than half a million people, then there needs to be efficient flows. They cannot, you can't slow down too much. You have to have efficient flows. Of course, you know, on a local level, you want things to go slow, but they should be able, for a truck, should be able to be deliver smoothly food to the grocery yep. store and, and all these kind of things. So in that sense, it doesn't matter the planner's name, but around the turn of the century and important continental Europe, 
because I'm a very much a fan of these courtyard buildings. Yeah. You have, you know, you have the street and then you have a private courtyard where you get air. And today you don't, you know, you don't wash uh, or you don't do uh, other things at the courtyard. You can have the courtyard can be used as private greenery, you know. Yeah. So you have this silent private space in the Bistling city. So it's, it's really, really, you know, future proof and it's very well working. Um, at the same time, the grid is organized and varied and also it's beautiful because there is just not focus on efficiency. They use a technique, uh, they use sight lines. So usually you have this street or boulevard and it ends up in a beautiful building. So you have these effects all the time in the classical city. Very, very, very beautiful. Yeah. And it's, it's so impressing and it's, uh, it lifts the spirits of, 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 you know, uh, of people living in these cities. Also, it's very e also it makes it very easy to orient, orientate in a city. You know, if you have these sight lines and you can orient you know, with certain tall buildings, yeah. uh, which is also a subject, of course. I'm very much a fan of height limitations. I hate, you know, disorganized, uh, one building is uh, 12 floors tall and another is three. The best is if you have three to six stories, uniform height, and only like civic buildings and religious buildings, you know, they, yep. they are higher than this. So you get like a hierarchy in the, in the city, you know, what is important, what is revered, what is holy in the city. Yeah, because nowadays we see a lot of high rises everywhere. Uh, yeah. Also in Amsterdam, there is a lot of construction going on everywhere. Uh, well, mostly in the north and mm. surrounding some train stations, but there are just clusters of ugliness. Yeah. And it's bad urbanism and, and it has been proven so many times. So, so why, why do we continue uh, when it comes to high rises? Uh, depending on where you are on the globe, the further north you get, you get shadows if you have high rises. Uh, that is one thing. You get a lot of wind. Also, you get disconnection from the street. People that live on the 12th floor have no meaningful relation with the street. But if you live uh, like on the third, fourth, fifth or sixth floor and the building is just, just that high, everyone is connected to the street. They see what's happening on the street. Yeah. They can go to the balcony and shout at their children, you know, playing downstairs or something. There is always a meaningful interaction. Uh, towers will just make us alienated from each other. Everyone will be isolated in a little bubble, you know, away from the city. Uh, this is not me inventing things. This is, you know, there have been research about this. So why, why is this not more discussed? And you don't need towers for density. You build towers because it's simple for the construction companies to build a tower than yeah. to build an area. You only need one entry and uh, that's also a very big problem with these huge bucks. They mm. they don't have all these doors to the street. They only have one entrance and for the rest you don't mm. just have blind walls and glass and yeah, um, yeah only places for the dog to uh, to pee mm. against. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. But and, and I'm not against construction companies making a huge profit. I'm very much for that. But they should not decide how to say the cities should put up the conditions so what they do will be for good you know uh, if we just allow some kind of total free market 
it will always be the lowest common determinator and we will see horrible cities. The, the cities should be active, you know, not interfering directly, but putting up enough good regulations so everything that the construction companies create will be of good for better for the city. And this is, by the way, this is, sounds like common sense, but especially in the US, there seem to be two extreme camps. One want to overregulate, and the other was total free market. Yeah. It feels uh, we have something similar almost in Europe, but, but not as extreme as in the US. Yeah. There needs to be some middle ground, but there, I think good ideas are the most important about mm. urban planning. And the funny thing is the, the evidence for what works is all around us, and we see it in, yes. like in traditional cities. Mm. That's why you, my, my controversial statement that 99% are idiots, because it's so obvious. It's so obvious. You don't need to be a scientist. You don't need to do, conduct research about it. It's so obvious what people like, what they prefer, where they want to be seen, where they want to hang out, where they want to stroll. It's, if you look at, you know, uh, the tourist cards, you know, the, the cards from every city, how they want to market themselves, it's always, you know, there's yeah. never any modernist buildings. No. So obviously everyone knows what is good, but somehow it, it, you have to prove it scientifically with endless studies that, that proves the obvious. And this is, this is all this is just a lot of silliness. And this irritates me a lot <laughs> that you have to scientific prove what everyone knows. Yeah. Because if, if it wasn't true, then why do all the tourist boards hide all the modernist buildings and only show the classical city? Yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and where are real estate prices highest in European cities? You know, what, what buildings do people want to live in? What are they ready to pay for more? It's also, it's very, very easy, hard data. Yeah. And, and, and that also makes it really easy to uh, redevelop areas that are very unpopular into popular ones once you apply this knowledge. Uh, yes and no. We know what is good and right, but as I told you, because the urban planning is so bad, you will have to redraw the grids. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter how much you densify a bad grid, it will still not be a city or a good urban environment. So we have a situation now where you basically need to bulldoze. You have to do like in the 60s. You have to bulldoze a lot of areas because you need to redraw the whole grid structure. Yeah. Uh, it can be done. You know, if you do it in a slow process, you, you evacuate and build. You, know, you, yeah. offer, you build, start building a new area and then you offer the tenants, you know, you can move this yeah. And then we tear down your building. But there has to be a, like a, a political will. Uh, best thing to do is just not continue building bad new neighborhoods. Yeah. And that's uh, something we do a lot in the Netherlands, in Sweden, Germany, UK, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's practically hard to redraw the grid, but uh, mm. theoretically... There is, there's yeah. a lot of evidence of what you could do to make the least popular areas of the cities into very popular areas. You just need a different kind of architecture, a different kind of grid. And, yeah. Yeah. and, and cohesiveness. There, there are some factors. And, and this, all this is so disturbing because there are, things are so obvious all the time. You have the architecture, you have the grid, the whole 
urban structure. You know, they it's very fancy to have open courtyards. You know, they, they don't close the courtyards. So then you get a problem with you know, what is private and what is public. Yeah. Uh, they do so many silly mistakes and also they create islands. For urbanity to work, you have to have cohesiveness. You know, the old, the new area needs to be physically properly connected with the old area so that it's like a national, natural extension. But what they do now is that they build a lot of islands and they have create a lot of barriers. So there is no natural walkability between the new area and the old area. So what you get is even if they have intention to make it an urban area, it will not be a true urban area. It will be a suburb of some kind. And you can see it, you know, what, what kind of stores, you see it clearly, you know, what kind of stores open in this area. In a true city area, you have what you call it, seldom shopping shops, uh, makers of uh, ancient pipes. You know, you can find all of these kind of interesting stores that, that cater to a very limited demographic. You can have that in a true city area because there will be people from all places that will come to this area. In these new disconnected areas, you don't get that kind of stores. You get chain stores and you get a gym. Oh, of course, some, some sushi places. But because they are not, you know, cohesive urbanism, you don't get the true city. You don't get the, sell, no. I lack a good proper English word for it, but, you know, seldom buy shops. Yeah. Yeah. Or shops that you will never enter, but you're happy that they are there. You know, it's very amusing to walk by and look in some kind of niche hobby store that you will never walk into, yeah. but you're happy that it's there. It's very recognizable for uh, Dutch cities as well. Utrecht, uh, mm. Amsterdam, you have a lot of these. Yeah, so so um, so yeah, the cohesiveness of cities. Do you think there are ways to adapt a bad old grid to to increase the cohesiveness? Just preventing islands, or there are many ways. But first, you must recognize the problem. And the thing is that these people that are in charge, they see the consequences, but they don't understand why it happened. And this baffles me all the time, you know. Um, so if you just identify the problem, preferably from start, but if you cannot do that, okay, afterwards, identify barriers. What is a barrier? A barrier can be a large, wide road with lots of cars that will work mm -hmm. as a wall because it won't be walk. You won't be able to pass over it. It can be a railroad track. It can also work as a barrier. Uh, some kind of, of physical barrier, road, railroad, whatever, that makes it not natural to walk from the new section of the city to the old section of the city. There you have a barrier and there you get problem with continuation of the city. Mm -hmm. You can build over barriers, you can dig down, you can make a tunnel instead of a highway. Uh, it's of course expensive, but, but it is possible to do. When it comes to railroad tracks, you can make more pedestrian bridges. You can make it more inviting in many ways to yeah. walk past these things. Uh, fixing bad grids. It's not easy. You can do ad hoc. If you have the possibility to tear down some buildings, then you can redraw the grid a little bit. And you yeah. will have to work it, work it like that way. But but best would be to 
clear it completely because uh, many of these new areas have two wide roads also so you get you know the distance between these two sidewalks would be too great so there's no natural connectivity between two sides it's not you know you can't walk from one side to the other in a natural way of course in a city there's a hierarchy some roads uh, should be wider and some smaller but you know in a in a in a typical area there are a few wide roads and then the rest are a bit smaller they're not medievally small but no. they're smaller so you get you know you can just easily walk from one side to the other so it works like one street otherwise if it's a too wide road it will be a barrier so if you are on one side you will not naturally be able to oh I, there's a shop on the other side that i find interesting oh i just can't but i can't walk to it ah i'll do it some other time i will skip it this time so you lose a lot of these spontaneous things that you know a lot of shopkeepers depend on you know spontaneous shopping decisions yep. and all this kind of thing so yeah you, you get a boring city with only chain stores and all the interesting stores all the you know what they call it in english ma and pa stores disappear completely yeah so reorganizing you can do it it's expensive you have to have a will and you have to have understanding how do you create a good city from the start? If you have all these things, most areas can be mended, not completely fixed, but they can be mended reasonably good. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I want to quickly, yeah, get to know a bit more how uh, how you got interested in this whole field, uh, traditional architecture and uh, urban design. When was your interest sparked? Was it at a very young age or, yeah. Mm. Well, it both began early and it began late, you know, as a teenager, uh, you walk around in the, in the city where I mm -hmm. grew up mostly. I was born in a, in a small hamlet in, in south central Sweden, but then I moved to Stockholm when I was about three years old. Uh, as a teenager, you're walking downtown and you see these old buildings that are very, very beautiful. Yeah. And then you see, yeah, oh, 50s and forward and it is just dead ugly and it you know it it uh, you laugh at it when you're a teenager and you talk with your friends about it uh, and you don't you lack you know the whole vocabulary and way to express it but you see it because it also because it it feels wrong because at the same time you are taught in in our history classes that sweden was so poor a hundred years ago and we're so rich today but when you look at architecture, it feels really the opposite. You know, yeah. it feels like we were we are like today we are barbarians inhabiting a, a superior civilization. You <laughs> know, <laughs> it really feels that way. You know, yeah. when you look at architecture, because uh, what we built a hundred years ago, and not only in Stockholm, that's the impressive thing with Sweden. Not only in Stockholm, Sweden had always had a very small population. Despite that, if you go to yeah. like you know cities of, of that had maybe five or ten thousand inhabitants a hundred years ago you will find wonderful impressing public buildings in the smallest of places in the inlands of you know northern sweden near the arctic circle you find very very impressive public buildings and we were able to build that despite being dirt poor and so few because yeah. the population of sweden was maybe five million or something a hundred years ago and very very rural we achieved that then, and today, 
we can only yeah. be Douglas. We, we only we only live like on the past glory. Everything good about Swedish urbanism and architecture is a hundred years old today. So there you got, you know, you got to start thinking. But there were, of course, other issues, you know, more important when you were a teenager, you know, than architecture. Um, uh, then, you know, at, at age 20 around, when I want to study, I, I thought of becoming an architect. But I thought, no, I cannot draw, so I can't become an architect. I was that naive, as I told you previously. Uh, so I went into the field of, of urban studies, society mm-hmm. planning, the society planning program. Uh, the conclusions that I had, you know, that all this beautiful and new is good. I thought about it, but maybe, you know, if I get into this field, maybe I can have some kind of change then. It, it wasn't so raffinated. But then, you know, gradually it grew. Uh, I started traveling abroad quite late. I was in my 20s, you know, before I didn't travel so much abroad when I was younger. So I had a, a very important trip. It was to Vienna, yeah. Austria. And it was just amazing, you know. Wow, you can so much, you know, fantasy and ex, uh, expression and, and uh, artwork. It was just magic. And like wow you can create this uh, and it's really like what, what what happened to our hands how, how come we could create this magic because vienna was really magic for me uh it's a beautiful city all, yeah it's a beautiful city and there is so much expression so much so much imagination and how can we do this and we, we cannot do today oh i built this glass box with a strange angel uh, how, how can today's architects be some feel that they are in the same field as the people that built these cities. It's just absurd for me. Yeah. Uh, okay, the years passed on, you know, I thought, like many people, I thought about this, but, you know, there was life and, and you know, I got engaged, I got my daughter, all these kind of things, you know, that, that passed on. Uh, then with the advent of social media, Facebook, then, you know, I started to, to think that, because I read, you know, what other people do, you know, that with social media, everyone can be, if you have some con- something to show for the world, everyone can do it for free. You get a fantastic, huge platform. Yeah. I wasn't convinced about Facebook in the beginning because Facebook in like 2007, 2008 and 2009, it was basically like Instagram is today. People mm-hmm. put up uh, feet uh, on a beach uh, and then they put up pictures of their food. And I started like, wow, this is a place for idiots. I, I don't <laughs> so, yeah. so well, why do I want to see your breakfast? Or yeah. that you <laughs> put your feet on a beach somewhere, you know, well, it, yeah. it, it was just like, it's just like narcissism. Um, yeah. so, so I didn't think about it. But then uh, Facebook matured because all these people went to Instagram instead. So what you got on Facebook yeah. was a lot of groups of different interests and politics and everything so from there uh, my focus was of course on on, on sweden uh, i wanted to discuss this subject more yeah. uh, and do it in a practical way because it's one thing to always have theory we should do this and we yeah. should do this but you don't get any impact you will have a small circle of people that think they agrees with you and nothing happens so I want to create a project page to show actual built projects mm-hmm. to just 
convince people that it is possible today. Yeah. And you are allowed to like it. Because that's also one of the strengths of the modernists, that they have told a lot of people that you are allowed to believe what you see. You are not allowed <laughs> to think what you think. Uh, so two things. We can build it today, and you are allowed to like it. Yeah. Because you really do, but you are not publicly, you are not allowed to like it. Um, then, of course, there was a lot of strategy behind this. Uh, so out of a Swedish psychologic mindset, you have to adapt a little bit, it was important to show places that couldn't be called reactionary or backwards. So I showed a lot of projects, new classical projects from Berlin and New York. Because in the Swedish mindset, you cannot call these places reactionary or backwards. They are like, the, they lead the future of culture and everything. So if they do it, that must mean that if we don't build classical in Sweden, we are backwards. Uh, like a simple psychological trick. Uh, but then this is also, you know, one of the conclusions during all these years. Because uh, like a majority of people still believe today, I believe genuinely that all the ugliness was because of costs. It's not. 99% is ideology. We live in an ugly world because of ideology, not of anything else. And anyone that says anything else, uh, he doesn't know or is a liar. <laughs> what? Because, because, because yeah. uh, it's, everything stems from culture and architecture discourse. And it's the architects that put the discourse, what is architecture of today? You know, the frame, what is, what is a building of today? They decide the discourse, the architecture discourse, what is contemporary architecture? Yeah. And from that, then builders and others, you know, react. But they are the decision makers, you know, what, what a building should look like today. If yeah. they would make towers and bricks and all these kind of things, then the construction companies would build this. They have no ideology, the construction companies. They just want to make a profit, which is good. They can build classical, they can build modernist, they can build anything. They don't care. Yeah. They profit maximize. But the discourse, what is architecture, it's the architects that set. And even if you would give them total free hand, free budget, free everything, would they build classical? Nope, they wouldn't. Why? Because, because they won't. Yeah. Another maybe interesting factor is what the market wants versus what the policymakers want in their city. Because you see in the Netherlands, mm. which I learned from uh, Mika Bosse from the mm. previous podcast episode, mm. that in the 90s there was a big shift from building social housing towards more private home ownership mm. and then suddenly you saw a surge in yeah more traditional housing projects nowadays we even see like a van de siècle like a late yeah. 19th century construction inspiring modern homes and those houses are really popular yeah. but public buildings are still almost all modernist yeah exactly a very very good point you know i, I try to follow as much dutch companies as i can and there really is a catalog, you know, classical, uh, Jaren, Dra, 30s. Yeah, yeah the 30s, uh, uh, yeah. And then, and then you have the, oh, sorry, my Dutch is so bad. I, you have these houses with straw on the roof, oh, yeah. what you call them. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. 
Riet, Riet de Dake. Uh, oh, Riet, Riet de that's a, that seems to be a category as well, you know. So, so what people like, you know, the, it feels quite kind of simple. But uh, the power, you know, because power is very important why, why we are building Arkley. Uh, the modernists, I tell you, they have succeeded very much in consolidating all the power to them to define what is allowed to be built. Politicians have been, how do you say, told now for 70 years post-war that if you intervene or have an opinion, you are fascist or Nazi. So yeah. the best thing is, you know, you want your back free, you leave it to the experts, the architects. You don't have dare to have an opinion of your own because then, you know, a lot of culture journalists and, and architects will call you a lot of bad things and you will have a hard time to defend yourself. And that's the same thing, you know, with ordinary people having an opinion. Either they don't know, they are basically told between the lines, shut up, yeah. you shouldn't have an opinion. Yeah. And they have been very successful with this. So no one dares to criticize their projects. Yeah. Until. And, and <laughs> until, until now. Yeah. And, and that's the point, you know, of all this rebellion. Because the majority thinks that all these new builds are ugly. And now they are told that they are allowed to think this as well. Yeah. And that, and also, secondly, they learn that all this ugliness is made on purpose. It's not by cost or anything. It's done on purpose because the architects want to build in this way. And then people get quite angry. I, I... Yeah. So talking a little bit more about your own platform, uh, which grew from your interest and from your frustration, New traditional architecture. Yes. Can you tell a bit how it came to be and uh, how it grew also into architecture uproaret or architectural uprising? Yes. Uh, it began while I was working at a, at a company doing uh, rental doctors. We have a, oh, you know, wow. too few doctors. So, so I worked with a company and I was, you know, uh, promoting, you know, you offer doctors as consultants mm -hmm. so they can travel to different parts of Sweden and, and work. Uh, and then, you know, I, I learned more about Facebook. So I started this group in Swedish then. Uh, mm -hmm. I can enjoy you with the name here in Swedish. Uh, Ny produktion i klassisk tradition. Uh, basically, new buildings in classical tradition. Yeah. That's what it meant. Just simple showcase, but also have like a problematic discussion. Because one problem is that while I publish many new projects, they are far from perfect. So I don't want to lower the standard all the time. I want to tell you, have a discussion. Now, here's the new building, here's the architect, this pros and cons here. But show, they are building classical in Berlin, they are doing it in New York. I also found Dutch examples, Belgian examples, German examples, a lot of German examples. Uh, and that grew slowly you know yeah. i wasn't i'm not trained in marketing or anything like that so so i did my best and it slowly slowly grew but what happened after a year was like a really lucky coincidence uh, a person joined yeah I, he wants to be anonymous he's a <laughs> totally normal guy married and everything and he's not an architect uh, he joined and he thought of he found this enthralling, and, and you know we were you know totally agree on, on everything there. Uh, 
uh, it was just the format, you know, how, how my group was organized. Yeah. So what he did is that he started Architecture Rebellion, Architekturbrot in Sweden. So it worked like two legs on the same body because both are needed. Yeah. Uh, on one hand, you have new traditional architecture today that showcase a wide variety of products, not always the best, but try to showcase what's happening in the world, you know, in, mm-hmm. even in countries like uh, Macedonia, North Macedonia or, or Romania, or, or ha- try to have a wide selection so that people, you know, can find out and find each other. Uh, and on the other hand, you had this very, very media savvy architectural rebellion. Basically, one nice project with one picture, click, share, click, share, like, share. If you like this and want to see more of this, like, share. Yeah. Super efficient, super efficient. <laughs> because it works, you know, in the, in the, it works by engaging people that don't have architecture as their main interest. 99% of people have, don't have architecture as a main interest. They love to live in a lovely place and beautiful buildings, but they don't have it as a main interest. So with this simple but effective format, the uprising started to attract a lot of ordinary people of all walks of life, you know, young, old, men, women, very, very good gender balance. Otherwise, you know, architecture groups can be a bit imbalanced with more men than women. Um, And from there, it just grew. They grew side by side. And the rebellion, of course, got a lot of media attention because he's very good with media and and creating. He's not educated in it either, but he's very media savvy. So he got media to be interested. And from there, of course, then I got a platform because then I could talk, you know, in interviews. And then as the rebellion grew, more people with different, you know, experiences and and, and, uh, skills joined. Mm -hmm. And it continued growing. And with this simple Facebook group, stir up so much attention. And so it was so, it is so effective. And media gets interested. And as soon as media gets interested, then you can send in, you know, all the serious people that can say good, serious stuff, because then they have, then people listen to them. Yeah. Because it's, it's always about, you know, unfortunately about power. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of smart things to say. If you don't have backup, you know, behind you, no one will listen to you anyway. Yeah. Uh, in 2018 then, you know, some years yeah. forward, uh, new traditional architecture, you know, the Swedish group, it switched from local Swedish to English and with a bit new, you know, orientation, more international and connecting people like we are speaking here today. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've spoken to other people in, in other countries and people find each other. So you have to have find, you know, the, the handful that at the moment that are engaged in this in Poland, they should be able to connect with people in the UK, Spain, France. Yeah. Everyone should con- connect and learn from each other. Also, a lot of young people that want, maybe want to become a classical architect, they can see now that it is possible. Because uh, education is, is something that we both know is a, is a big problem. And the problem is not only the indoctrination, yeah but there is a self-selection. 
So people that like boxes are the ones applying for architecture school now. If you want to become a classical architect, you won't apply yeah. for architecture studies. There today. is there's still some wanderers in university that mm. get uh, disillusioned and then they yeah. quit or they become a, yeah, a modern architect. And some of them have some chance of at some point steering towards more traditional styles, but the mm. chance is very low. Yeah. So uh, making the young people, oh, you can become a classical architect. People will love you for it. And here, if you draw something, we can publish it in this group. And you get, you know, a lot of slaps on the back. You know that, you know, maybe your uh, student uh, bodies or architecture colleagues will not like what you do. But majority of the population, yeah. they will not only like, they will love what you do because they are so starved of beauty. So encouragement and make it a, making more and more people realize you can become a classical architect, you can organize, and also like a learning platform. Yeah. What's happening as a Dutch person, it's very relevant for you, maybe more relevant, what is happening in Germany, Belgium, and France. Yeah. For a Polish person, maybe it's more relevant what's happening in uh, Germany, Czech Republic, and, and, uh, and Belarus. So also this, you know, what's happening in the neighboring countries. You can see that in new traditional architecture because I organize albums. So you can always find something close to you. So you can mm -hmm. see, aha, they are doing this, that. What persons are behind this in Belgium or, or, or Germany? Maybe I can go and visit them and talk to them. Yeah. So you create a lot of connections. So that, that's, that's the current, you know, what's happening now with new traditional yeah. architecture. And the uprising has continued to grow. More than 50,000 members now in Sweden. That's a lot. It has an enormous media impact. And it's so lovely because there is really an angry online mob now. <laughs> can, you, so, can you describe the media um, effect they have? Impact? Uh, there is discussion all the time. We collect uh, all the articles uh, where you know they have mentioned or discussed the architecture uprising. So you can find it on the uh, Architecture Rebellion's webpage. And it's all over. It's the big newspapers, it's the small newspapers, it's local newspapers. And it's just never ending. And everyone is discussing now. And there is always now, you cannot suppress it as you could before. No. Now, you know, people will say things. And Swedish building companies, they cannot have now a commercial on social media without there will be <laughs> 3,000 people saying, this is shit ugly. <laughs> and that's so freeing yeah. because, yes, they, they can continue build, but they, they won't get any love and they know that they are hated for it. And that's, that's a part how you remove power, you know, from the modernists. It should be shameful to be an architect. That's the, that's yeah. the final goal, you know. If you go to a party and say that you're an architect, people will like sneer, oh, you're the one that draws all the ugly boxes. Yeah. You should be it's like it's horrible to say, but you should really be socially ostracized for wanting to build all this ugliness and, and, and or the and, whole field should be improved so uh, it becomes a honorable job again. Yes, exactly. And honorable that that's the final goal. But for that to happen, you have to remove the power from all these modernists and then put it in the hands of the classical architects combined with politicians again. Yeah. Politicians are elected by the people, so they are our representatives. So if they think that something is ugly and want to override it, yes, 
they have a democratic mandate to do it. A modernist architect is one person. He's not elected by anyone and neither are the experts at the municipality. So yes, politicians should, and they got now in Sweden, a backbone to say more things and demand more beauty. They don't really know what they want either. They are not, you know, they are not properly educated in this field, unfortunately, but at least they dare to say now, we want classical. Yeah. And that's a, that's a very, very good step. So we have seen now not many built projectlets yet, but you had a lot of decisions now. Mm-hmm. Latest now is, is uh, just maybe some weeks old, is in a municipality south uh, east of Stockholm yeah. that decided now that a whole new building quarter, uh, 6,000 apartments, wow. should be classical. Seriously? So, so, it's, yeah. so, so it's really happening things. Uh, things are really moving. Of course, this is not China, so it will not be built tomorrow. It will be six to ten years or something, you know, because everything is complete. But, but things are moving. So in the 30s, 2030s, then we will really, you know, all these decisions that are made today will have borne fruit. Yeah, it's a long-term project. Yeah, it's it's really an oil tanker that you have to move in the other direction. So it's, yeah. Yeah. But things are are really happening. Uh, And very nice to see also is is the sister groups. There are different architect uprisings. So you have one in Finland, Denmark and, and Iceland and Estonia and Croatia yeah. and now the Netherlands. Uh, but one that really flourished just the last six months is the Norwegian uprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I think they are very active on uh, on all social media. I've yeah. seen them post a lot. Yeah, and they really exploded. And also the, the head of, of, of uh, the Norwegian uh, uprising, yeah. I think his name is Saher Sohuri, uh, okay. A bit unsure about pronounce that. Uh, he's interviewed more or less like every day. I see a new article about him. So wow. you're getting the same effect there. You get, you have the people behind you, and then you give the politicians a backbone, so that the politicians can say no to modernist projects and demand classical. Yeah. Then there comes new kind of problems because, uh, of course. The politicians don't have any support by experts because there are no experts that can help them. You know, how should we make a good classical area or anything? But at least you have begun, you know, to demand that they realize that they have the right to have an opinion about this. Yeah. Yeah. So much has been destroyed since early 20th century in all the fields of traditional urbanism, architecture that basically everything the whole infrastructure needs to be built up again because it has yes. really impacted everything education practice i mean all the public buildings all the bigger apartment buildings and high rises it's completely dominated by by modernism but this infrastructural demolishment it has been so effective because everything has to be built up again from the ground yes but there's one interesting architect that there was a center, I think, the new Noble Center. Uh, oh, you yes. had, yeah, the, with the counter design by Niels Frekhuis. Mm. How do I pronounce it right? 
Nils Frekesa. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, but it's uh, that was a very interesting. Don't ask me to pronounce Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's quite horrible for other uh, other people to pronounce Dutch words, <laughs> but that was a really beautiful and also daring design. So you had this very boxy design for the new Nobel Center in Stockholm. Mm, yeah. Yes. And then you had uh, this, um, yeah, renegade, uh, young, traditional architect who just designed a beautiful, classical, like really classical building with columns, um, yeah, as a counter-proposal. And I think it also, did it also reach the media? Yes, very much, very much. What happened? Uh, his, yeah, his first proposal, uh, I actually found the best one, because there were plans, originally there were plans for a noble palace uh, in a, another, a, a bit different location, uh, in the same area, but a bit different location. Yeah. But it was turned down uh, at the turn of the century because it, it was, yeah. uh, it was, a, it was a, in Art Nouveau style. But, but more, uh, how to say, at the time they thought it was too oriental for, uh, for Stockholm. <laughs> you wow. know, everything is relative. You know, everything is relative what they discussed at the time. So, so they wanted it to be more, more, uh, how to say, Swedish national romanticism. So they get in a, in a, in a fight with the architect. So it was never realized. So his first project was to complete this project yeah. and show it off. And there you got a lot of media attention. Uh, and of course, everyone preferred this alternative to, <laughs> to the ugly box. Uh, worth mentioning is that the area suggested for the new Noble Center, the Shippendale, this ugly nuclear reactor box, is today maybe like a, a parking plot. It's an old magazine building and a parking plot. So it's heavily underused. But still, people prefer that to this nuclear yeah. reactor. Wow. That, that says a lot. So, so uh, but that, that's also highlights a problem that you have in most cities and in Stockholm especially. Uh, we only react. We need to go on the offensive because we stop 99 crazy projects in Stockholm, but one get through and do a lot of damage. We have got a lot of crazy damaging projects. So you have to be on the offensive and like work to build new beautiful, not only try to stop all the ugliness yeah. because some ugliness will go through. So you have to try to not only defend the city, but to enhance it in, in a better way. How do you think uh, that is, what's the best way to, to start this offensive? Public pressure, like we're doing now. Uh, there is a reason why it works in, in uh, w w there are many, as I told you, there are many projects going on in Stockholm where I live, but they are not in Stockholm municipality. They are done in the municipalities around Stockholm. And the reason is quite simple. They don't have the location. So they have to attract residents, you know, in a better way because everyone wants, you know, the good taxpayer residents. Yeah. So how do you attract them? Well, if we don't have the location in downtown, of course, you can build anything ugly because people want to live there. So, so it doesn't matter. But in the, the further away and the lower status, then you have to build 
beautiful otherwise you can't attract yeah a high pa- a high tax paying clientele basically um stockholm also stockholm is kind of special compared maybe the situation yeah. is similar in amsterdam is that uh what you have in stockholm that you lack in, in other swedish cities it's that you have an establishment so politicians architects and journalists they are highly concentrated to one specific area in stockholm they live in the same neighborhood their kids go to the same kindergarten the same school they hang out at the same bar so they are friends and yeah. it's hard to criticize your friends i think in a in a hard way we don't have the exact same but we have something similar we have the so-called the Grachtengordel. It's the inner part of Amsterdam where uh, where you have a couple of canals that enclose the, the old city. And that's a really, uh, yeah, a who's who of famous Dutch politicians, uh, journalists, architects, intellectuals. They all know each other. And yeah, it's, it's, it's still a ve- very big concentration of power basically the problem is the concentration of all these to the same place because then they then they become friends with each other so it disturbs you know their different interests in the countryside you know the architecture rebellion first made it public you know out not in stockholm but in the cities outside stockholm because there you don't have this this establishment where you know journalists and architects and everyone lives in the same place and are friends mm-hmm. so they don't have any loyalty to each other so they have no problem criticizing each other while in stockholm you know they are friends with each other so they, you don't criticize your friends because then it will be very stiff you know in the party that you're invited to next friday so uh, stockholm municipality will probably be the last in the country to change when it comes yeah. to architecture unfortunately but the municipalities around Stockholm, smaller cities. We have Gothenburg now, that is the second largest mm-hmm. city in Sweden. Uh, they have very, very good, you know, uh, social democratic politician that have suggested many classical projects and they have been approved now also. Uh, nothing built yet, but everything has been approved. So things are happening. Yeah. But the capital will be the last, really the last place to change. I think that's in a lot of countries. It's the same pattern that the cities, especially where the concentrations of power and yeah, highly educated people are, you have more progressive concentrations. You see in the countryside a lot of uh, traditional projects springing up. Mm. Like it's it's the the real pearls I believe that you can find in the smaller towns, not mm. in the bigger cities. Although there are some exceptions to this rule. Mm. There's a lot of hypocrisy in this, of course, because uh, the area where they choose to live in Stockholm, the Jonas and Bukishan, it's very, very traditional. And yeah. the architects live in, they made their research, where do Swedish architects live? <laughs> and 66% live in buildings built before 1920. So, <laughs> so it's like Alexander Studdard said, you know, modernism is something you do to others. They live in traditional blocks, and in traditional architecture, they have their offices in traditional buildings, but they build modernism for others. And it's the same with all these people that like modernism or, or all these 
it's it's I don't want to be, get involved in politics here, but the people that have like this progressive mindset and say that they love modernist buildings, usually they live in very traditional environments and love to vacate also in very traditional environments. Yeah. But because it's not close to home, of course you can like modernism if it's not at your street. Just visit it for five seconds, this new museum, and then you go home to your nice and cozy, cozy <laughs> area. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think is, it's uh, the same with uh, Rem Koolhaas, the big architect from OMA, who oh, yes. is supposed uh, to live in some uh, Victorian or Georgian uh, townhouse. Yes. Um, yeah, which is, I think, the... the that was, it was like the best interview that Spiegel has ever made, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that is of a, a progressive magazine, I can tell you, a left-leaning progressive magazine. So it, it's not about left or right, and it never should be. No, uh, but they did the interview with him and then asked him, "Okay, you live in a Victorian house. Why do you draw?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and then they said it was that's uh, arbitrary or something. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, that it didn't matter, you know. But yeah. of course it mattered because it's a pattern. Because we see the pattern everywhere yeah. all the time. They don't live what they they don't live in what they draw. Yeah. Another interesting hypothesis I have is in the Netherlands we have a more Calvinist inhabitants like more protestant uh, mm. and i have this uh, hypothesis that catholics are more yeah leaning towards traditional designs and protestants especially calvinists are more leaning toward more sober and uh, minimalist designs because yes. adorning your church or your house in this yeah faith is yeah a bit contradictory to the the whole yes yeah. yeah the whole doctrine that you should be humble yeah and and, uh, and the humbleness is very expressed in architecture you can see that very clearly you know in europe because there is a mm -hmm. you know almost a line you know between protestant and catholic europe yeah but catholic architecture generally is much more expressive you know minimalism and all these things they, they are protestant inventions i'm a lutheran myself so, <laughs> so I, i'm allowed to, to do self-criticism here but you have it very much in Sweden. In our, yeah. you know, our traditional wood carving, uh, our Art Nouveau, we mm -hmm. have lavish buildings, but traditionally everything was more humble, is more strict. The vernacular is much more strict mm -hmm. because you should not, you should be humble, and you should not try to be special. You know, try yeah. to shine out or anything like that, and you should not be wasteful. You should, you know, you work, work is the road to salvation, but your money is to be reinvested, not, not spent on luxuries or anything like that. Yeah. So you see this in Scandinavia, you see this in the Netherlands, and you see this in, in Switzerland very, 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 yeah. very clearly. Le Corbusier himself was a Calvinist, I believe. Oh, yes. I've been outside his villa in Zurich and I wanted to throw stones, but <laughs> it, it didn't happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you have, yes, you have this, this thinking. And it is a bit strange that they, they prefer, but it's, they like beauty as anyone else. And traditional Protestant architecture can be very, very beautiful. Yeah. It doesn't look like, you know, uh, like in the Catholic part of Europe, but it can be very, very beautiful. But... In the Protestant mind, it mutated to pure utility. Everything should be practical. Beauty yeah. is not of importance. Yeah. It wasn't always this way, but now it is this way. Yeah. 
But that's the, the the strange thing because we there's a lot of research showing that beauty does matter. Actually, it, it matters extremely. It, it has so mm. much impact on land values, on uh, the mood of people, on how people feel about mm. um, yeah the the well being of of the population. Uh, people crave for beauty. That's yes. why they adorn their homes, even if they live in a in a yeah horrible apartment block. Uh, they still want to make their interior as beautiful as possible. Yes. Well, generally, so to just ignore beauty is, I think, crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is crazy because it's against our human nature. So, so if you talk about you know the psychology behind beauty and everything. Uh, it's about you know two concepts. One is safety, that we feel safe. The other one is that we feel stimulated yeah. by our environment. So traditional planning and everything is good because it makes us feel safe. We have an overview of our built environment. That makes us feel safe, that yeah. makes us calm. The beauty of architecture, the classical architecture is that it's so readable in a good way for our mind, which also creates, you know, a sense of security. You can read a classical building. It's logically divided. You have the base floor, you have the middle section, and you have the upper part. And the upper part, if you look at a classical building, the windows are always small, smaller. So yeah. you have a very readable building. You can instantly read the building and it makes us calm. We can see our environment so we feel safe. It is varied, the classical architecture, but in a harmonious way. So you have both homogeneity and variation in the same building, which also, you know, it makes it readable, but at the same time, it doesn't get boring. So these are, how to say, the, the psychological mechanism, you know, behind the success of classical architecture, why we like it so much. Uh, when we speak about, you know, beauty, yeah. Uh, there are concepts of beauty, you have everything from symmetry and everything, but mo most things that make us so calm is just that it's readable instantly. Because when you walk around in a city, of course you will notice beautiful buildings, but usually it's unconscious. You just walk and enjoy. You don't necessarily think of the buildings, but they are there and affect you nevertheless. And the readability of the classical city, the buildings, uh, how the squares, how the streets are made, so that you always feel safe, that makes us enjoy ourselves. We relax and we get happy. In the modernist place, architecture is either monotos, um, monotone or it's chaotic. So you cannot, your mind cannot, you know, easily organize it. That stresses you. And the urban planning is bad, so you don't feel safe. You know, you don't, when people walk, they walk close to walls and everything. There's a lot of, you know, research about this, how people walk, you know, in the built area. And in the classical planning, you, how to say, people feel safe all the time because they, are, they feel protected, that they always have a wall close to them. The streets are not too wide, the plaza's not too big. And the landscape is not too open so that you always, you know, see what's in front of you, what's left of you. You have control of, of the built environment, uh, which is very important, you know, for, for our feelings. 
Yeah, I just have to instantly think of all the windy, wide roads with anonymous blocks where you wouldn't want to walk. Yeah, so so the, the value of beauty in our built environment is, I think, very underrated. It wasn't always. For, for 2,000 years, it's our you know, maximum priority. Yeah. And suddenly we, we threw it overboard and look at it now, how miserable we have become. You know? Yeah. Do you think it was a priority or did it just naturally emerge out of... It was a priority because it was always spoken of. It was always spoken of, you know, in, in uh, every old document, you know. Uh, I just heard, a, I saw a documentary how they built the cities in the new, in new Spain, you know, in, in Latin America. Yeah. And, you know, how they, you know, organized the central, you know, plaza, how you should put the bu- buildings and how to make a view so that it should look beautiful. They mentioned, you know, they mentioned beauty. All the cities must be beautiful, you know. There must be beautiful sites and everything. Uh, and in general, you know, in all planning that has been, there has been, you know, how do we make this beautiful? Yeah. How do we make a maximum dramatic effect? And with the 19th and 20th, uh, already in the Renaissance, you know, they talk about ideal cities and everything, and they make ideal city plans. Beauty is, you know, maximum priority. There's yeah. never, never only utility. The value of beauty is a value in itself. And this value had positive effects on, on all other things, on, on utility. So it's not a value in itself that separate from all the other values of the city because it affects all the other things in a very, very positive way. Mm-hmm. And now we can see it as well, you know, beautiful cities attract tourists. And one can, one can hate tourists, but tourists at least can be a very good engine for rebirth and regrowth. Like what happened to Barcelona. That was a kind of shady city before, you know, the Olympic yeah. Games in, in, in 1992. Now they have to pass laws to hinder <laughs> not being overrun by tourists. Uh, and yeah, so, so beauty can work like an engine uh, for a city. It can attract because people want to be in beautiful places. We are social creatures, so it's not uh, that we walk out uh, outside just to shop. It's not a pure utility. We want to see other people and we want to be seen. So where do we want to see other people and where do we want to be seen? Mostly in beautiful places, because we so want to be associated with them. Yeah. We identify with them. Uh, so that's also a thing, you know. It, you know, one should one one talks a lot about that, that there shouldn't be feelings in politics, but in architecture there should definitely be feelings. There should be tons of feelings, and there should be tons of positive feelings. You know, with with architecture. Uh, because we identify with it so much. We identify with our built environment. So people that live in a beautiful neighborhood will have stronger local identification than people that live in an ugly neighborhood. Maybe the people that live in an ugly neighborhood also will have an identification, but it will not necessarily be a positive one compared to those that live in a beautiful neighborhood. Yeah, I always wonder how people can identify with just a glass box. Yeah. Is it it possible? Yes, it is for a short while if it appeals to their identity project because we all have, we, we all modern humans have these identity projects and we want to be seen by others as, uh, for many people, yes, I don't want to go into politics, but, but people that want to be seen as progressive 
they of course want to move to this new glass area that should be the height of progressiveness. Yeah. But then after some the years, zeitgeist. then after some years, they, they realize that, oh, this is just crap. This is what happened, you know, with our old, old progressive areas in Sweden, uh, all our concrete suburbs. They were modern when they came. They had running water and electricity and daycare and this was the city of the future. So everyone was very happy when they moved out. But, you know, after this, this hour of that we are new modern people faded away, this is just crap and people hmm. started moving away. Yeah. So they are not future-proof, these glass areas. They will be abandoned as, as the other modernist projects of, of this. Yeah, and will probably area. be demolished and it will be a waste of resources in the end. Yeah. yeah. And either you can build uh, a classical then, or you will build a new modernist project that in turn yeah. will be abandoned in 30 years' time. So Yeah, <laughs> that's the choice. Hey, what is your uh, favorite building? My favorite building? There are so many. <laughs> <laughs> One I of your favorites. New, I find new favorite buildings all the time, I can tell you. Yeah. Uh, so I got two favorite buildings now. Yeah. One is the Hungarian... Ministry of Finance. Ooh. It's being reconstructed now. We should really show the listeners yeah. what it looks like. Uh, there's a current state and they are reconstructing it to how it looked before the war. It's an amazing building, really amazing building. And it has been uh, bombed or demolished? And It was during the uh, Royal Hungarian Ministry of Finance. Uh, it was during the World War II uh, like 70% of Budapest was, was more or less destroyed. Oh, yeah. So during the communist era, they made reconstructions, but very poor reconstructions. So now they start a project or doing, like with many buildings in Budapest, uh, they will reconstruct the Minister of Finance. Yeah. And when I saw the drawings and the photos of this building, I was just amazed. You know, it was really like, wow. And I saw the three of this. So that, that's... Uh, yeah. A clear favorite. Yeah. Um, I have so many favorites, but this one is, uh, if you talk about the more recent one, and then you have uh, in Algiers, in, in Algeria, uh, you have the uh, Notre Dame d'Afrique, uh, Our Lady of Africa, amazingly beautiful church, yeah. built in the 1850s. It's, it has a lot of domes. It almost has something like a mosque. Yes. So, of course, they got, you know, inspiration, you know, by, by local architecture. Uh, but the lights and the colors and the location, it's, it's uh, beautiful. Really, really beautiful. Oh, these were just two of, of many favorite buildings. Yeah. Yeah. There, are, there are clearly many, many others. Uh, they just, you know, I remember, you know, visiting Vienna. I can count like a hundred buildings that would be my favorite, you know. Because exactly. Also. Yeah, I think a nice final question to to uh, finish this conversation. Uh, we've been talking a little, uh, well, a lot actually about activism and changing mm. things for the better and uh, the impact that, yeah, social media can have. Mm. What can the listener do to join this fight to get more beauty? in his or her city or country? It's very simple and it's so reachable today. Join a Facebook group. So if you live in the Netherlands, join the Dutch Architecture Uprising. Yeah. Just 
it's you know you you click you join you write comments and you find others that are like-minded because yeah. you will meet you will find people that i think like you and you will find people that live in the same city as you and then you organize and then you localize so you make a local undergroup of of the uprising so it's very simple and then comment a lot comment it's it's so it's like literally slacktivism you know you don't need to go out in the streets and protest if you want just sit at your keyboard with your cell phone you join these groups and you write a lot of comments when you see ugly buildings that they market on facebook or other social media you write a comment this is ugly yeah yeah so that that's the simplest 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 way to start a change if you want something more advanced meet the like-minded that you find in this group meet for real everyone knows someone so you talk you engage and you try to how to say create a local public debate and discourse by everyone know you know by affecting people you know one to one there is an option you can build beautiful it is built today you're allowed to think what you want uh, our job as you know, host of this group, is to help people with the vocabulary so yeah. that they have a vocabulary to express themselves. It's very important to differ between modern and modernism. That is one thing. Mm -hmm. Because if we say that we're against modern buildings, then that must mean that we are prefer not modern buildings. Yeah. So it's like semantics. It, it will be you know, a losing battle. So give people some simple words so they can express what they like and when they have these tools they just live they know that there are others they will find the like-minded and they will talk with people they know that they have in their lives and then you get the change you're allowed to think what you think you're allowed to have an opinion you don't need to be an expert of any kind to have a saying about how the city should look like, what your neighborhood should look like. You have the right to say it, and no one is allowed to say that you should shut up. And politicians have the right to interfere because they are democratically elected. City officials and uh, architects are not democratically elected. So if we talk about fascism, they are fascist because they want monopoly on power to tell, decide how our built environment should look like. And they base what the, our built environment should look like on their own personal narcissism. They don't care if it's good. The most important for them is what their colleagues in the same field would think. They don't have any skin in the game. So they should really not be telling, you know, and they should really have no power at all to decide yeah. how our built environment should look like. One crazy thing about this whole architecture debate, it is that those in power, the modernists, will try to kill it instantly. And they will do it by association with fascism and Nazism. So they will try, if they will not directly call you a Nazi or a fascist, they will do it by association. They will try to put a political label on you. So what you need to do is to have, and this is how the modern debate works, you have to have victim points. It's good to have victim points. In my case, I'm half Jewish, 
so they can't call me a Nazi. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and when they can't call me a Nazi, then suddenly we can discuss, you know, factual things. The head of the, the Norwegian architect uprising, I think he's an Iranian immigrant, so they can't call him a Nazi either. So suddenly they have to discuss, you know, uh, serious things. So, so a hint, a tip is to, to find your victim points and wear them high so, so, yeah. so that you can have a serious discussion because they will try always to kill the discussion before it starts. They will try to, how do you say, kill your person because yeah. they don't want to discuss the errors of modernism. Because if you have a factual discussion, then it will be super clear that, oh, this doesn't work. Why do you do it? So that's why they don't want this discussion at all. Because all discussion will only lead that they lose power because people will see through that this is just nonsense. Yeah, yeah. I know it sounds very controversial, but yeah. everyone, everyone that discusses these things will instantly be called a fascist or a Nazi. Yeah. Everyone that tries will know for sure that this is what will happen. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much, Michael. <laughs> uh, Thank you for hosting me. Yeah. It was very enjoyable. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Aesthetic City podcast. Don't forget to visit Michael Diamant's website, newtread.org, or to join one of the Architecture Uprising Facebook groups, if you like to, of course. If you like this podcast, consider giving it a favorable review on Apple or Spotify. Find more information on The Aesthetic City on theaestheticcity.com or on our Twitter page. Thank you and till next time.